I've become so well acquainted with this mic over the last month. I've said maybe probably more words into this mic than I've said to my own family in the last year. Well, here we are again. (laughs) (laughs) We're back. We're on episode six. I mean, we've made it this far. We might as well just keep going. This series of episodes is all about the Best Picture nominees, the Academy Awards, and then hopefully we do something different because for the 10th episode, I'd like to not talk about a movie from last year. Unless we talk about a good movie from last year. <laughs> I'm just kidding. These are all good movies. Yeah. I wouldn't argue against Lighthouse for... Um, and we're back. We're back again. Back again. For the sixth time in a row. Coming at you. We're doing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Before I saw any of the other movies, this was my favorite. And then I saw other movies. And then my mind was like, hey, Steven seen anything else well this came out in july so it might have been the first movie of the group because a lot of these movies came out right at the end of the year yeah so my memory's a little hazy i did see it once i think i saw it twice because i wanted to go back and just experience it all again we have to go back we have to go back steven to the island what's the name of our podcast uh what's the name of our podcast what's the name of our podcast (laughs) i forgot the cast i feel better about calling our podcast the cast rather than calling it the cult podcast at least in conversation with each other can we go back in time and change everything start over that's what lost is about and back to the future yeah and avengers endgame and any time travel story yeah lost wasn't really oh my gosh was it i need to watch it again it was very much about time travel i've only seen it through twice and wanting to change the things in your past Anyway, we're talking about Quentin Tarantino, my favorite filmmaker, not... Not even close. Not even close. Steven actually hates Quentin Tarantino. That is not true. Quentin Tarantino stole Steven's girlfriend in high school. (laughs) (laughs) No. First of all, I didn't have any girlfriends in high school. I don't believe you. Actually, I do believe you. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's true. What's something that we have that's different? From everyone else? No, from each other. Oh. (laughs) In the first podcast, you said, we have a good yin and yang. And I said, yeah, we do. But let's explore that. Well, on paper, there's not a lot, I think. You're in Enneagram 9. Yeah. I'm in Enneagram 8. So proximity-wise, we're right next to each other. With a wing (laughs) 9. I'm wing 1, so I swing the other way. Ooh, you're a little organized and freaky. I mean, I don't like it. I wish I wasn't. God, please change me. Because <laughs> I, it's frustrating being any amount of OCD. And any, I think everyone probably has a little bit, but mine's pretty strong. It's gotten better. But, but it's helpful. I appreciate it. But otherwise, we have a lot of different opinions. I think we both appreciate what we think is good in content across the board. But also, we diverge in certain aspects of those so here's the thing, because you're an eight on the Enneagram, you're the challenger, you're very strongly opinionated. And then I, I'm very moldable, flexible in my opinions, and I try to see both sides of an argument a lot of the time. But you try to avoid... avoid. But I, yeah, I, I simultaneously, I want nothing to do with it. Gabe is a epitome of a wallflower. Hence Gabe was born. Let's, uh... Do, we, do you want to run through the logline of the movie, the synopsis, so everyone knows where we're coming from? I'm going to read to you blindly what Gabe has written. So Gabe wrote this. Oh, God. Well, this time, this is... Gabe wrote this. These aren't my words. Gabe wrote this. This is IMDb. Gabe wrote this. This is IMDb? 
The first line. I added the second line to have clarification. So the movie is about what, Stephen? A faded television actor and his stunt double strive to achieve fame and success in the film industry during the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969 Los Angeles. And this is what Gabe wrote. Their story intersects with Sharon Tate and the Manson murders. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's important. And it's not... So it is important. So here's the weird thing about movies that have to deal with history, even in a revisionist sense, is spoilers. Everyone knows. I actually didn't know anything about the Sharon Tate and the Manson murders when Ditto. I was. So I didn't know how this movie was going to end <laughs> going into seeing it. Oh, yeah. That'd be a problem. This, that's what it's about. It's these two guys who are fictional characters modeled after real people, specifically Brad Pitt's character. But they intersect with real people like Sharon Tate, Charles Manson has a scene, and his crazy ass cult. Who was the little girl? Was she somebody? No, but she she was incredible. I made a note somewhere to mention her. She was great. Yeah. She's like seven or eight years old. She was uh, one of the best things in the movie. Uh, Budget, $90 million. True. Which is a lot. I was thinking about it. The whole time I'm watching this movie, I'm like, man, this must have cost a lot of money. Because just to drive down... To shut down parts of the city. Or to, to own parts of the city for a day or two. And drive down 1969 Hollywood with all the cars. And you're driving on the freeway in Los Angeles at that time with all of that production design. Yeah, this must have cost a ton. And that's most of the movie, is driving through Los Angeles. Which was fine. That's kind of why I liked this movie. It's experiential. Um, world box office gross, meaning that's how much it earned, <laughs> to was date. $390 million. And that's without And it China. was not released in China. Do you hear about that? Because of the... Well, there's... Well, there's so there's, so a, couple there's a couple reasons. Are you copying, Are you copying what, I'm what I'm saying? Bruce, Bruce Lee. Lee. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, so Tarantino... Tarantino all right, you want right, to take, take, take it away. You take it away. You read it. <laughs> I have something to say. So, Bruce Lee. <laughs> that's, in China. That's, that's the real... real re- go ahead. This bit is bit overdone. Is overdone. <laughs> okay, that's what I was about to say. You keep stealing my words. That's what. That's what's really happening right now. Okay. This podcast is now what yours. What were you going to say <laughs> about is, Bruce Lee? Go ahead. Well, Tarantino movies are always very graphic, so they always get edited for China, and that was the front they used for this again. He didn't want to compromise the vision for his film. But the main reason it didn't go out in China, because this wasn't a particularly violent movie, is the Bruce Lee thing. A lot of people were upset about the depiction of Bruce Lee in this movie, and Bruce Lee's daughter wrote to the China Film Administration or whoever is in charge of that, and she got it banned in China because Tarantino wouldn't edit his film to change his depiction of Bruce Lee. So the movie probably would have made much more over $400 million. So it's impressive that it did 390 without China. Tarantino's probably one of the only filmmakers working now that has the blank check. Yeah. He's just going to do whatever he wants. Yeah. So this is the first time that he was like, nope. And he's only got one more movie to make, right? <sighs> That's what he says, but he's probably going to keep going. Before we get into all that stuff, let's keep going with facts. Cold hard facts. Five Golden Globe nominations for this film. Musical comedy motion picture. Win. Director. Not win. Wah, wah. Oh my God. Greenplay. <laughs> win. Actor. Didn't win. Supporting actor. For Brad Pitt. Won. Also, he won the SAG. He pulled the Laura Dern. He won all the supporting nominations, and he'll probably do the next one, too. There you go. Okay, so then it's nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Best Best Picture, (laughs) Director, Cinematography, Original Screenplay, Actor, Supporting Actor, Costume Design, Production Design, Sound Mixing, and Sound Editing. It's a lot of noms. 
by the way, when I was talking about the delineation between sound mixing and sound editing the other day, yeah, I talked about the editing, and I never actually finished my thought about the mixing. Well, finish it now, Stephen. So I'm going to finish it right now. Do it. I will. The editing is chopping up the sound. The mixing is mostly sitting in a large theater-like, well, no, it's a theater. Like a studio. So a mixer, they work with a couple technicians sitting behind a really large mixing board usually multi-tiered they're sitting usually in the center of the theater hearing all the speakers and how they work together and they're they're actually mixing you know the dialogue sound effects the music background noise anything you hear in the movie yeah it's all being mixed together for a theatrical release and that's what a mixer does which is different from the editor or sound editing which is actually chopping up the sound for the mixer to mix so that's the difference we're finally getting to the bottom of all these Crazy awards. Uh, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. The director of photography is Robert Richardson. It was edited by a man named Fred Raskin. The music supervisor, which uh, I they guess didn't have is a score for this, important because there was no score. Yeah. Is, her name is Mary Ramos. That's an interesting and thing. Gabe really wants to talk about Mary, but we're gonna keep going. Okay. The actors are Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, amongst many others. Shout out to the little girl. One time, which we did. We did that. Uh, it was also. Did. It also had a lot of uh, cameos. Cameos. There were a lot of people in the movie. Lena Dunham. Well, there's so many people. And um, Harley Quinn Smith was in it as well. Did you notice that? Kevin Smith's daughter was one of those girls. Really? Yeah. She was one of the cultists? Uh-huh. I didn't know what she looked like. I know Uma Thurman's daughter was one of them. Yeah. She was actually one of the ones from, from later in the and movie. And then the girl from Leftovers was that girl. Yeah, M- Margaret Qualley. So... Can you believe that, though? There was no score. Like, this movie was all soundtrack according to just music from the time. Can I believe that? Yeah. It's I interesting. Can, I've never it. seen that in a movie before, though. Oh, it's happened. I assume there was always at least a small degree of original music composed for the film, but not for this movie. And so he had a music supervisor it's instead a, of composer. It's a great move. Yeah, it's just interesting. It's super interesting. It's a great move, I think, for this. Let's. I want to go back to this Bruce Lee thing. Uh, before I forget. So yeah. why were people upset about that? Why were people upset about that depiction of Bruce Lee? He played a role that was, and they discussed the term in the film, he was the heavy for Brad Pitt's character. So he's kind of an antagonistic force, at least in the one scene where he interacted with Brad Pitt's character. It painted him in kind of a negative light. And a lot of people, specifically his family and his friends, were very upset about that. And a lot of the Asian community as well. I have a friend who's Chinese, and that was one of the first things we talked about when we were leaving the theater. So was that an inaccurate representation of him? Uh, well, that's the thing. That's the point of debate. Bruce Lee is typically, or he's thought of as a very nice guy, and he's very friendly, and that's probably true. This movie, I, he was a little cocky and headstrong in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I never felt like he was... Well, he seemed like a caricature of himself. Yeah. And another interesting thing to note on that topic, there is... A tool in the movie... In storytelling. ...called The Unreliable Narrator. Mm -hmm. And this movie is actually mostly from the perspective of Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth, who is kind of second fiddle to Leo. But this is really Cliff Booth's... He was was first fiddle in my book. I mean, this is really Cliff Booth's story. So everything is sort of told from his perspective. And we see at least once 
in the movie before this when it's talking about his wife. Uh, we're not sure exactly story. what is true in the context of the story. So one of the interpretations for the Bruce Lee character was that this is Cliff Booth's memory and impression of him to make Cliff Booth seem more heroic. Mm -hmm. So this might not have even have happened like that in this universe. Mm. I mean, Bruce Lee is one of the most renowned fighters of all time, and Cliff Booth seems to very casually beat him in a best of three scenario. Even though it was probably disrespectful, I was like laughing when... Yeah, it's funny because it's not what you're expecting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's not out of the question that someone like Cliff Booth, and I think Cliff Booth was, you know, modeled after a real person. He was able to best Bruce Lee. Not many people have been able to do that. I think it was an exaggeration in that way. So, I don't know. I see it that way. That it's an exaggeration? Yeah, that this wasn't... But it's the unreliable narrator that you're talking about. Yeah, okay. that this is Cliff Booth's interpretation of that interaction. So... Because we see, we also, I'm just going to cut you off again. We see Bruce Lee at other points throughout the movie, like where he's training Sharon Tate for her role in her film. Oh, yeah. Margot Robbie's character. I forgot about that. And he is shown as a nice guy again. Right. So it's a little inconsistent. And I think that was intentional. I don't think Quentin Tarantino meant to besmirch the legacy of Bruce Lee. Mm -hmm. You know, we live in a day and age where everyone's very hypersensitive to everything that happens in a film, even one of revisionist history, which is what this is. I mean, we rewrote the Manson murders. When this movie ended, Allie, my wife, she turns to me and she goes, so what do you think this film was about? I said, I think it's just Quentin's love letter to classic Hollywood. She's like, okay, do you have any more to say? I'm like, not really. Like, that's, yeah, that's exactly what it was. It's pretty much just three hours of Quentin Tarantino immersing you or himself or the audience into, in that place and time. into 1969 Hollywood. He's romanticizing the whole thing. He's idealizing it to the point where he's even created a new story to live in so that it would live on forever in a way, or that Hollywood would live on forever. Because the classic 1969 golden age of Hollywood ended with the Manson murders. Yeah. And so for him to basically get rid of the Manson murders is basically his way of saying... We can live in this fantasy land. We can live in this fantasy land <laughs> forever. forever in this movie that I've created. Yeah, that's what I loved about this movie because I loved being able to just uh, see what it was like to maybe drive around the freeway in 1969 in LA. Mm -hmm. I loved that, and every time we just got something like that, though, you know, the neon signs and being able to see it and what it would have been like, especially in this um, kind of oversaturated storytelling, the way that he portrayed it. I really enjoyed just living in that version of 1969 Hollywood. But also, let me just say, this is on the tail end of me really hating Quentin Tarantino's films. My favorite film that he's done was Django. And then I liked Hateful Eight for, again, the aesthetic. And then this is now either my favorite of his or my second favorite because it's unlike anything he's ever done. Yeah, that's for sure. Hey, remember that time you and I were in LA? Vaguely. And I was like, hey, we got to go out of our way. Like a half hour. We got to drive to this one spot. Oh, we yes. we got to go to this one place. I remember it fondly. I think about it every day. Why would we go 35 minutes from where we were to go eat at a restaurant? It was the best. What is this place called? It's Howlin' Ray's. And what do they serve there? Chicken sandwiches in particular. What kind of chicken? The spiciest chicken. What kind of chicken? Fried chicken? There it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrible. Howlin' Ray's. We're talking Nashville hot chicken. If you ever are in Los Angeles and you're willing to wait in a line for an hour and a half. Not kidding. You want to go to Howlin' Ray's. Why? Because it is 
amazing. It's the best chicken sandwich you'll ever have, and the spiciest chicken sandwich you'll ever have. Level one of five is probably already the hottest thing most there people have ever There are six had. levels, and then a seventh hidden secret level. Bonus level. Bonus level. You've got six options to choose from. Country, mild, medium, hot, X-hot, and howling. In that order? And I'm telling you, because I told Gabe, you do not want to get the hot, because it's really, really hot. Medium should be hot. And then there's also a Howlin' Plus, it's a secret one, but Howlin' is the one where they give you rubber gloves to eat the chicken with. Do they actually? Yes. Do you get to keep the gloves? And on the weekends, they have chicken and waffles. Tantalizing. I'm telling you, I've had chicken all over the United States. All over the tri-state And I'm area. telling you, this fried chicken in Los Angeles at Howlin' Ray's is the best fried chicken you'll ever have. I've had it in Portland. I've had it in Atlanta. I've had it in the South. I've, I've had, had it in, in the North. North. There you go. I've had it in space. I've had it underground. Let me tell you, this is the best chicken you'll ever have. I'm salivating just thinking about it. I, Gabe and I talk almost every day about leaving our workplace in the middle of the day and driving to Howlin' Ray's. It's totally worth it. I'm telling you, if you like food even just a little bit, right, Gabe? Because you don't even like food. You will like this place. You will like Howlin' Ray's. Yeah. The, the line is like 45 on a good day. The line's 45 on a good day. It's I One time, I waited two and a half hours. Are you kidding me? No. Was it good? Yes. <laughs> of course. It's the best fried chicken. Not only is the flavor amazing, like we're talking like Nashville hot chicken. It really is the hottest thing I'd ever eaten. And I love spicy food. That level four, I was bawling. Steven can attest to this. And I was bawling out of laughter because I told him not to do it. I'm going to go, if we ever go again, I'm going up a level. No. I'm going howling. I want Dude, the rubber gloves. No, you're an idiot. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, not only is it Nashville hot chicken, in, but the, I guess the chicken that they use is extremely good as well. Yeah. They source from a local farm where they put their chickens to sleep before they slaughter them. How humane. And they say that makes all the difference. I hope they do that to me when I go. <laughs> Back to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We have nothing left to say. No, but he's... Do you, do you, have you been a Quentin Tarantino fan? Do you like him as a director? Yeah, I'm not the massive Tarantino fan, but I really enjoy his style. His style is unique to most other filmmakers. Kind of like Wes Anderson, you always know when you're watching a Tarantino film. But I did love this just because, like you said, it's unlike his previous films. Mm -hmm. It's more reserved and withheld. It's like a master, and he's referred to it as his magnum opus himself. But that's what it feels like. He's learned so much from making his other eight or nine movies. This is kind of him flexing on us by holding himself back. Because everything he makes is always so bombastic, and this felt very controlled and... Everything he does is, you know, intricately designed, but this was very quiet and calm. And it was, like you said, it was fun just to live in that world for a couple hours. Yeah, it felt like he was just smiling. Yeah. Like, this movie just kind of felt like Quentin Tarantino was just smiling on 1969 Hollywood. It felt very kind of luminous in that way. Yeah. The whole movie radiated this happy ambiance. Even in the end, he turns this scene that would have otherwise been horrid. The third act. And he makes it fun. The premise is these characters are intersecting with the life of Sharon Tate. Right. So this film moves towards a point, which is the climax of the movie, where it is, it's on the night of the Manson murders, but it plays out differently because this is a revisionist film. Like if Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton were real people and they were there at that time, it, would things have gone differently and how? So Cliff Booth, Brad Pitt's character, he runs up against the, the cultists. And like you said, their interaction is both hilarious. It's classic Quentin Tarantino. 
And that's when it becomes like the classic Quentin Tarantino film. Yeah, that's when you have your Django moment. Yeah. But it's all packed into the last 15 minutes of the movie. Mm-hmm. Which is, <laughs> it's, an, it's really fun. And it feels very rewarding to get to that point, yeah. I think, after sitting through two hours of... Right. pontificating. Yeah, kind of a meandering plot. Yeah. And then it all comes to a head at the end. Yeah. A lot of that kind of smiling aspect that I was talking about, I think, comes through Margot Robbie's character. She's playing Sharon Tate. Yeah, she she's the heart of the movie. And Quentin Tarantino was saying that he really wanted to show because everyone when they, when they talk about Sharon Tate, they just talk about her dying. But he wanted to show her actually living and just show her in a normal day and what that would have been like for her. She went to the dry cleaners or something to pick up some. At one point, and then she, she went to, to the go theater. see herself play this role in the theater, and she's watching this movie, which is funny because it's actually Margaret Robbie playing Sharon Tate, watching Sharon, Sharon Tate. Tate. Yeah, they used the original footage for that film where she was with Dean Martin. I can't remember what it was called. And she looks pretty similar. And she's sitting there smiling at herself and laughing to the crowd in the theater, reacting to her in the in the movie. Yeah, she's beaming the whole time. Every yeah. time they get a laugh. What's funny is that she's only in maybe a handful of scenes in the entire movie. Mm. Her screen time is by far the least of the principal cast, but she is the heart of the movie. And every time you see her, she's like, she's a light. Yeah. She's a light in the film. And so when you finally see at the end, how everything plays out differently and Sharon Tate, uh, at a point she interacts with Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Mm -hmm. Rick Dalton, you're just, you're, you're warm and fuzzy inside. Especially because on top of centering around Sharon Tate and Margot Robbie, it's also centered around Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt's characters and their friendship. And as their careers are kind of dwindling down, their friendship, much like in Ford versus Ferrari, the friendship in that movie, the friendship is carrying them through. And and that's the thing you're kind of following. I like what you had written down here, which was that Brad Pitt is the cowboy that Leonardo DiCaprio wanted to be and never really was. That was a really good insight. Did you come up with that all by yourself? Well, that was a quote from someone who was reviewing the movie. Most of this film takes place over the course of a day or at least half of it. Most of that time is spent with Rick Dalton. He is preparing for a role where he's a cowboy. And in the movie's continuity, he's, like you said, the fading movie star or TV star. And he's trying to become this person both in his personal life and in his career where he is the heroic individual who's leaping back from his midlife or early midlife crisis. And he wants to be that cowboy figure. And he even, he's reading a story with a character called Easy Breezy, who is the cowboy he's aspiring to be. He's wondering if he will come back and make his name again in the world. But that character is actually Cliff Booth. He's living out Rick Dalton's intended life in in the in real time in the movie. Even though he's in his twilight years, he is becoming this heroic figure. That's why I thought the movie was really about Cliff Booth even more so than Rick Dalton. Even though Leo's the one with the best actor nomination and Brad Pitt's the supporting actor. Right. And they were both great. I don't want to take anything away from either. There were there was more subtlety, I think, that people might gloss over in Leo's performance mm-hmm. because he was he was changing into that character more than Brad Pitt was just naturally Cliff Booth in real life. Yeah. Cliff was Brad. He was just the coolest, most self-assured person you've ever seen. And he was the hero. He was the cowboy of the story. Totally. I agree. Interesting perspective. That relationship I really, really liked yeah. in the movie. You mentioned I, the Ford vs. Ferrari, but I think this was even more heartwarming because they yeah. were close and they depended on each other. And in the end, a lot of Brad Pitt and his lifestyle depended on Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Yeah. 
Uh, he, was he was technically his employee. He was employee. <laughs> so there was this point where they, everything was coming to an end and it was sad and they were sad. And But toward the end of the film, I think you really got the idea that their friendship was going to live on and it was going to be good. Yeah, I think there's a point in the movie where there's a narrator. It was Kurt Russell. It was Kurt, Kurt, Kurt Russell, Russell. That's right. Who's yeah. also in the movie as another character. Yeah. But he refers to their friendship and he says in reference to Leo to Brad or Brad to Leo, they were someone that was closer than a friend, but not quite a brother. That might not have been the quote, but it really encapsulated their relationship. Right. I'd like to shout out Luke Perry, who yeah, died last year. Rest in peace. Um, I really love him. He was one of my favorite things about Riverdale. Leonardo was really excited to work with Luke Perry. Um, he looked up to him. Yeah. Uh, Luke Perry, he just seemed like such a nice guy. Every The whole cast of Riverdale when he died was super brokenhearted and posting a lot about it. But uh, even though he had a really small role, it was still good to see him again on screen. Yeah. Shout out to Bruce Dern. Uh, let's do a quick little segment. Yeah? What kind of segment? What kind of segment are we going to do? Quote of the day? <laughs> <laughs> a little segment I like to call... I have no wait idea. Wait for it. I have no idea. Wait for going. it. I'm going to wait for it. Do you think... Oh, yeah. This is going... What's this podcast called? To win Best Picture. Uh, yes. It's nothing new. What's, but you've said no the last three times I've asked you that. Four times I've asked you that question. Yeah. So it's good. Because they, they weren't going to win. It's good to hear yes. It's <laughs> like I've been hammering and hammering. And he finally said yes. It's like, hey, dad, can I have some money? No. This hey, is... dad, can I have some money? No. Hey, Dad, can I have some money? Hey, no. Dad, can I win Best Picture? <laughs> hey, Dad, can I, can I have some money? Yes. Or go ask your mother. You know, you never really know what yeah. it's going to be. This is the third of the three, and I think we can both agree, of the movies that could win Best Picture this year. Because Lighthouse and Midsummer and a couple other films were not nominated. Well, even if those had been nominated, they wouldn't have had a chance at winning. You got to uh, come to terms with that. Sir, um, sir. This isn't what we want um, to happen. Sir, what I want to happen yeah, I know what you want. Has already not happened. Exactly. So let it go. But I think I think it is going to win, or at least it's going to be one of three that can win. Hollywood loves to. You said Hollywood, Parasite, and, and 1917. 1917. Yeah, those are the only three. But your fourth was Irishman, correct? Yes. If I were to rank them, I'd probably then go Little Women. Or if it was a different year and Jojo Rabbit came out in a different year, I think. Oh jo- yeah. I think Jojo Rabbit could win. I think last year, if if Jojo went up against Green Book, I think it could have won. Any of these movies would have beat Green Book. <laughs> any I- of literally any of these movies, with maybe the exception of two or three, would have beaten Green Book. <laughs> yeah. Gabe, take us out. Like a like a, a an outro. Take us out. All right. You want to tell them about your Irishman experience so far? So I started to watch The Irishman last night because it's really long. Yeah. Let me just tell you, this picture opens up beautifully on this hospital hallway. It's the first shot you see, and the music is really pretty in that moment. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, we watched about three to five seconds of it, and we turned it off. So You're terrible. I'm on my way to watching Irishman. I committed to watching that the other night, and I didn't turn it off. I wanted to. Anyway. <laughs> That's life, man. Sometimes you just you watch five seconds of something and say, nope. Just, just make it. Just like The Witcher. Just put, do an hour a day, and you'll have it done in a week. <laughs> this has been the Cult Popcast. I'm Steven. And I'm Gabe. <laughs> if, you could, if you could rename yourself, what would you name yourself? Anything else. <laughs> well, that's it. 